This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. A little warning, in this episode we will be talking about allegations about the behaviour of one Donald Trump in office. So as you can imagine, parts of this conversation might not be suitable for children. You may have thought that we saw the back of Donald Trump when he finally left office on January the 20th this year. And yet, Donald Trump is back in the news. It's come in the form of a couple of new books. Firstly, by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, The Washington Post, and the revelation from America's top soldier, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, that Mark Milley was so worried that Donald Trump would go rogue and even go berserk that he single-handedly took secret action to hold Trump back from potentially ordering a nuclear strike that could have touched off a global nuclear conflagration. And Mark Milley appeared on Capitol Hill this week answering questions about that very claim. And it is my directed responsibility, and it was my directed responsibility by the Secretary, to convey that intent to the Chinese. My task at that time was to de-escalate. My message again was consistent. Stay calm, steady, and de-escalate. We are not going to attack you. And at the other end, you might think, of the spectrum from the sublime to the ridiculous. Stephanie Grisham, Donald Trump's former press secretary, out with a new book of her own in which she casts Donald Trump as a man who abuses his staff, even sexually harasses them, and gets on the phone from Air Force One to talk about the size and shape of his anatomy and can only be calmed down with show tunes written by Andrew Lloyd. Weber. These two books then have made Donald Trump news again. Does he still matter? Who better to ask that question than columnist for Guardian US and a longtime friend of this podcast, Richard Wolf? Richard, very good to speak with you again for Politics Weekly Extra. I feel as if we are putting the band back together once more. It's wonderful to be back and it's always good to be talking politics, especially on this podcast. We're talking about some of these real jaw droppers that have been coming uh, about the last days of Donald Trump from people who were working with him up pretty close. 
We're going to get into all of that. But before we do, just fill us in on what Donald Trump is up to at the moment. I mean, what the post-presidency life of Donald Trump entails. Well, it's not so much a comeback tour. It's more like a revenge tour. Uh, Here is a man who really is a, a specialist in stewing in his own juices. And he has been obsessed by his own defeat and has spent really most of the time that we can see he do, him doing anything um, in relitigating the people and the events that led to his downfall. So just a few days ago uh, in Georgia, about 100 miles south of Atlanta, he held a rally uh, where he engaged yet again in spreading disinformation about the election that he lost. Uh, and in particular, he was campaigning for uh, a bunch of candidates, rather obscure positions, not quite dog catcher, but pretty close. Um, who would exact some revenge on the pretty decent, hapless state officials who did things like certify the results. They did their job. So Secretary of State for Georgia, not a powerful position, who had the uh, outrageous expectation of, you know, saying that the election was fair. Uh, He's become public enemy number one. He just wants revenge. I mean, it wouldn't be completely unheard of for a former president to be out campaigning at this time of year, because there are, and we're going to be talking about it on the podcast in the coming weeks, there are some so-called off-year elections, uh, you know, governor's races in a couple of places and so on. He, But he's not, your point is, Donald Trump is not doing that kind of campaigning. No, he's not. And he's getting engaged in primaries. So, Normally, former presidents, they are the sort of standard bearers for the party, a figure of national unity or at least party unity. And so they don't get involved until there's actually a nominee. So this is very early. These are, as I said, obscure races. He is weighing in right, left and center to uh, maintain some sway over the party. But, you know, this is what animates him. He's been weighing in on, on the completely fraudulent audit, the fraudit, as they called it, in Arizona, <laughs> which was designed to uncover the grand conspiracy that led to him losing that state. And actually, even though uh, this self-styled group of cyber ninjas, I believe they call themselves, um, examined every ballot up and down, they actually found that the official count understated Joe Biden's win. So it was worse than it looked. But So we've got the picture. He's there, as you say, stewing in his own juices, living in Florida, in Mar-a-Lago, but on the campaign trail, but the campaign being some attempt to rewrite the history of his election defeat. But this week, he was back in the news, really a, for a couple of and a series of revelations that relate to his last days in office. We'll start with the most substantive, really. And that comes from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley. I mean, he is somebody who has been on the kind of news radar vis-a-vis Trump already, particularly for something he did last summer, in the summer of 2020, during the Black Lives Matter protest. Just fill us in on who Mark Milley is and why the his words matter. Well, Mark Milley is a top-ranking general, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as you say, a respected military figure. And In the middle of the Black Lives Matter protests, Donald Trump, you may remember, decided to have a photo op, walk across Lafayette Square outside the White House to the church opposite, and accompanying him on this walk through a tear gas strewn square was one chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, and both of those figures from the military said they regretted it, they didn't know what they were getting into, which 
frankly, could have applied not just to the photo op, but their entire service for, for Donald Trump. And it partly leapt out to partly because Mark Milley was there in full sort of desert storm military fatigues, wasn't he? Right. And, and uh, so it was clearly a show of military support for a very overtly political act. And, and Trump didn't even go inside the church. He famously stood outside there holding a Bible, uh, brandishing it upside down, of course, because he's not a Bible man. And the thuggish policing, the use of tear gas on nonviolent protesters and members of the media. And then, of course, having the military people both civilian and uh, uniformed, flanking a president doing that kind of thing. It, it was one of those visual, dramatic ruptures with normalcy and, and customary behavior. So Mark Milley, known to people because, yeah, America's top soldier, but also the chap who accompanied President Trump for that notorious photo op wearing full military uniform, he was in Congress this week, and that's really what brings us to this latest sort of set of revelations. What was he there to talk about, and and why has it got people talking once again about a president who you know we should have seen the back of nine months ago? Well, first of all, we should point out that he's a holdover; that President Biden decided to keep him in his job, which he need not have done. But that itself was a mark of a return to standard behaviour. So. He was there, ostensibly, uh, and actually is there as we speak, testifying uh, in theory about the withdrawal, the catastrophic withdrawal of American forces from Afghanistan. So that's what he was there to talk about. But in fact, there was a good amount of questioning about Milley's ample, um, profuse participation in a whole Mm. slew of books, the most notable of which has been by our old friend Bob Woodward, Uh, this time writing with a Washington Post journalist called Robert Costa. And Minnie's obvious participation in um, uh, revealing the full horrors of what we thought but didn't actually know was going on behind the scenes, especially as the votes were being certified on Capitol Hill that led to the riot and insurrection on January 6th. And it's in this book, it's called Peril by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, as you say. Millie is obviously the source for a claim that Trump had gone, quote, into a serious mental decline and that he was worried that Trump, you know, driven berserk after losing the election, would reach some kind of trigger point. I think that's the phrase used and actually press the nuclear button. And in this story, Millie himself is cast as the kind of hero, the saviour of the day who leaps in and prevents Donald Trump wreaking nuclear havoc in his rage about losing the election. Did his testimony make people think that Milley had, yes, indeed, been telling the truth about that? Or or, or how did the story bear up under questioning? Well, the story holds up in the sense that Milley is straight out of central casting. His statements about what happened, there are sort of two, two key dramatic scenes here. One is that Milley uh, calls in his own senior commanders and looks them in the eye and tells them that they need to follow the chain of command in case any conflict, nuclear or otherwise, is ordered. And that chain of command goes through him, him being Milley. And nothing should be done without Milley saying it's okay. That is not unusual in the sense of, well, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff most definitely should be. Uh, part of the uh, approval of any military action, um, even if it is ordered up by 
the commander-in-chief himself, i.e. the president. The, the context for that is that President Trump had um, drawn up an agreement to withdraw troops from Afghanistan, and he had done so without Milley's knowledge. In fact, he'd done so without the knowledge of most people on the National Security Council. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say on that, I think that's right, because I remember when Trump was running back in 2016, there were pieces written from people, you know, whose job it had been to actually implement a nuclear strike if there was going to be one, warning the public, saying, look, there are various conventions, but the way the system works, if the president wants to, he can just get the military aid who carries around the so-called football with the nuclear codes in it, make the call to the the relevant kind of control room in the Pentagon and order the strike. And actually, yes. he doesn't have to. If he doesn't want to, he doesn't have to include those other people. And it was that very terrifying scenario that really concentrate, concentrated people's minds. So that was the scene that Millie was conjuring up. And, it, and you know, it does, it can bring you out in hives of stress just thinking about it now. And as you say, nothing in his testimony alters that, that impression. But the, no. uh, as you say, there was a second dramatic scene. The second dramatic scene is that uh, the U.S. military and intelligence became aware that Chinese forces were on high alert, expecting some kind of berserk lashing out from Trump. And they placed through, uh, through Milley, um, placed through a call to reassure them that nothing was being planned and that there was no imminent strike and that they should therefore stand down from this state of high alert. But both of those incidents really underscore how much uh, Trump's closest officials and most senior officials were expecting a global conflagration because of the petulant tantrums and ego of a defeated president. You know, people have accepted the credibility, but the framing of those incidents and Milley's participation and role, as well as his recounting of them to, to journalists writing books, all of that has come under question. So the facts are not in question, but what Milley was actually doing it has, has been under fire from people on both sides, Trump supporters and Trump haters. Right, because Trump supporters saying, "What well, you've got no business intervening like this and also talking about it afterwards because you're still in post. And I suppose, you know, the, the criticism from the left will be on the claim that he was a Trump enabler in the first place. And actually, look, there is a there is a chain of command and it's not for soldiers, even however well-intentioned, to get in the way. Are those the sort of arguments? Yes. Uh, uh, the Trump fans say this is clear evidence of the grand conspiracy to thwart Trump, known as the deep state. The Trump critics, of, of which there are many, are saying, yes, this is, this is posturing. This is, this is typical of people who are trying to uh, whitewash their own reputation because they have frankly compromised themselves so badly. We shouldn't let this pass without mentioning Nancy Pelosi and this rather interesting exchange in which Millie had to say, look, I'm essentially, I'm not a psychiatrist. Yeah, and this one seems to have come more from Pelosi's office. And she calls up Millie and says, listen, you, you guys have better take steps to secure our military and protect the country because this man's mad and everyone in the White House is kissing, I believe the phrase is, his fat ass. Uh, Millie's response is, I agree with everything you've said, Madam Speaker. So not a lot of love lost there. And to be fair, even though the language is fairly graphic, um, this is consistent with what 
everyone has been saying, people in the Trump White House, Republicans in Congress, even more than normal, Trump was behaving like a crazy man in those days and weeks after the election, and in particular, as he got to the point where the votes were being certified and people like Steve Bannon, his longstanding advisor who had been on the outs and was back on the in, were saying, you've got to stand up and January the 6th is the day and we're going to show them. And Trump rallies to this with his own madness. Yeah. Well, look, so this has all come out in this book. As we've said, it's part of Washington Life, a new Bob Woodward book. But there is some competition uh, on the bookshelves um, and in the bookstores because there have been so many Trump books. And there is now another one from his former press secretary, Stephanie Grisham, who's called her book, I'll Take Your Questions Now, which has caused some amusement because she certainly didn't take reporters' questions when she was in the job. Uh, famously, uh, didn't hold, I think, a single formal press Not briefing. Not a single one. Uh, in the entire time she held the job, but she's she's keen to talk now. Uh, what are the standout stories that have come out of this book? And we should say that, of course, Donald Trump and his team have rejected the allegations in the Grisham book, and they've said it is, quote, a pitiful attempt to cash in on the president's strength and sell lies about the Trump family, branding Grisham a disgruntled former employee. This is the moment for a trigger warning. I mean, you've been talking, quoting Nancy Pelosi about some of Donald Trump's, well, about Donald Trump's anatomy in terms of his backside, but there is, there's going to be a mention of, of, of other parts of his anatomy. We should give you that warning. Tell us what's in the book. Uh, Stephanie Grisham is a character, frankly, that would not exist but for the fevered imaginations of Hollywood screenwriters and uh, Donald Trump's perverse inner circle. She uh, was one of the originals, uh, particularly close to Melania, the former first lady. The more surprising stuff, I suppose, or at least surprising in, in it has your worst fears confirmed, is Donald Trump ogling young female staffers, uh, calling in Stephanie Grisham at one point to insist or at least get her reassurance that she does not believe uh, what this former porn star Stormy Daniels has said about the size and shape of his male appendage. And so uh, Grisham does recount how she, I think I think it was probably a bit non-committal about confirming or denying the shape and size of, of his penis there. I mean, it's a fan, it is, I mean, you're, you're doing it so elegantly, Richard. It is, it's a joy to hear, but it is extraordinary. I mean, Stormy Daniels in the book had basically said that Trump's penis was shaped like the mushroom character in Mario Kart. And in Grisham's account, Trump calls her while he's on Air Force One to say that's not true, both in terms of size and shape. And she has herself saying, uh, yes, sir. I am internally uh, in gratitude to you to, uh, for, for explaining that to our podcast listeners who are now spitting out their breakfast. The court of Donald Trump was a pretty loopy place. But, you know, the music man, tell us about the music man and what his job was, because this really had even my jaw dropping to the floor. So Trump's fury is uh, legendary and apparently terribly scary for these poor, um, ambitious, grasping um, aides. And so uh, every time there is some military aid, they would have this uh, music man uh, uh, strike up some show tunes that would calm him down. Uh, so some Broadway pleasantries that would would ease him off of his fury. 
you know, in addition to the loopiness, I, I just, it, it's extraordinary, especially with a few months of distance, how normal these aides think this is. That, yeah. you know, there's these marks of regret. Grisham says maybe she should have spoken up a bit more. But really, they all know it's bonkers. They all know it's just stupid to have someone have to play music to a grown man who happens to be the most powerful single human being on the planet. And music to calm him down. He's, he's not a baby trying to go to sleep. This is somehow... I've got to tell you what it was really like, but Grisham was one of the key people who made it seem respectable because yeah. without these people, there would have been nothing functioning. No, I mean, the role of enabler is um, is the one they played. And actually, it turns out she, I think it was her former boyfriend who was the music man and would play, among others, memory from Cats to calm right. down the present. So before we leave the, get on to uh, the, the question of why this stuff still matters, and I, th I think it does, but we should get into it. There is one more piece of this, and that is that he's made yet more news this week with his reported plans to sue to prevent White House records being released that would shed light on uh, how his administration handled the 6th of January attacks on the Capitol. I mean, I don't know whether he's going to be successful. We know from his whole career that he always does resort to law. But at the very least, it's going to make it harder for the House uh, investigation, this Democrat-led investigation, to produce a report before those all-important midterm elections next autumn uh, because it won't necessarily have all the papers it would need to produce its findings. Yeah, it, it isn't clear that he will be successful. You, you know, what, what continues to happen around January 6th, and this is successful regardless of what happens on the legal front, the events of January the 6th have continued to be in dispute, continue to be clouded by factual and political challenges. And the bloody insurrection has not stuck on this Republican Party. It has not been a seismic event across the political spectrum, uh, which has meant that they've not been tarnished by their support, not just Trump's support, but the party's support for this really severe challenge to American democracy. But it is serving their political purpose. So the more challenges there are, the more disputes there are, the more people can say, well, it's just another legal fight. Oh, well, people of good, of good intentions can disagree about certain things. In this case, they really can't. But these games are allowing them to hide behind the muddle. brought us to the, an important question, I think, which is why all this stuff matters. Because Donald Trump always was, even before he ran for president or became president, he always was uh, made good copy and was always news, everything he did. So these revelations and stories from the salacious to the serious have definitely made instant headlines. But explain to us why this story matters. E even when we were talking about doing this as the subject of the podcast this week, we did pause because we thought, look, he is the former president. This is a several months ago. It's a, it can be sort of amusing and it will obviously be of interest to historians. But we came to the view that, yes, it does matter because Trump still matters. But tell us your view on that question of why this stuff matters. For a start, it puts into stark relief what we're seeing now in terms of the Biden presidency, that for all of the breathless reporting about, oh, Biden's collapsing and his agenda is shot and is Biden competent? 
the contrast between where we are today and where we were nine, ten months ago is, is extraordinary. You have grown-ups behaving. They may be behaving badly. They may be doing things wrong. And I'm not just talking about the Biden administration, but how the, how the Republicans in Congress are behaving. But that's all within certain bounds, at least the bounds that we've understood them since, uh, since the financial collapse in the Obama presidency. What is unusual, what was deeply unusual, was having a completely unhinged leader of the free world, of this immensely powerful country and economy. You have this unbalanced, unprincipled, frankly, un-American president who is throwing everything up in the air. And it is important to um, understand how destabilizing that was for Washington, for the world. And as you say, he's still a factor moving forward. But even if Trump isn't running, even if for one reason or another, he doesn't make it to the ballot in 2020, he has given Republicans a template. There are lots of mini-Trumps who are emulating, mimicking what he has done and how he has done it. And if we don't understand how close we were to a real catastrophe, then of course the risks of it happening again, but this time for real, are that much greater. And that's why the events of January the 6th, the deep concerns of the military, around this kind of leader, all of those things are exceptionally real and relevant to us today, even as we can say, please, God, let's just think about what we've got now and forget about everything that happened. Yeah, I think that summarises it very well, because he's not really a figure only of the past. I mean, he is the de facto head of the Republican Party still. But I think the crucial point is the one you say there, which is he still sets this kind of standard that Republican office holders and office seekers uh, measure themselves against. And so his endorsement, you mentioned about his involvement in primaries, I mean, his endorsement still matters. He's still the kind of the man, the you know, the kingmaker and rainmaker in the Republican Party. And therefore, any information we have about how he behaved in office, I think is still relevant. And that's why I think these stories are, are, are not just gossip. I think they're information about somebody who is, for better or worse, still a big player in American politics. Richard, as you know, as a veteran of this podcast, we always do end with a what else question. Difficult to do that with um, with a topic as, as, as all-consuming as this. I suppose the, the what else question will be sort of future gazing, and that mm. is all the stuff we're talking about, does any of it, whether it's the fact that, or the allegation that he was ready to kind of set off a nuclear conflagration, or that he was, you know, behaving appallingly with his female colleagues, does any of that shift Republican opinion and the way they see Donald Trump? Yeah, I don't think it moves the needle in terms of changing people's votes, but it does cement the Republicans, especially your suburban Republicans, who drifted away from Trump and the Republican Party because of his erratic, crazy behavior. You know, those are the voters who've actually been sliding away from Biden in the recent weeks as you know, COVID has stuck around and the Washington quagmire of budget battles has gone on. They've shown weakness in terms of their support for Biden. Anything that reminds them of how nutty things were with Trump, how much they disliked him, that's going to, if not keep them in the Biden camp, then at least stop them from showing up in the midterms. Maybe they don't feel they have a home anymore. But what I think could change minds is, 
is seeing the Biden spending plans come through. Even the Republicans have been opposed to them. They all want to go out and take credit for the new roads and bridges and any of the pork barrel money that is going to come back to their state. Money flowing, the economy growing, all of that is actually going to be more important in terms of moving votes for the midterms next year than I think these books and, and confirmation of what we already know about Trump's nuttiness. Richard Wolf, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you again about all this. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that is all from me for this week. To hear how the Labour Party conference went in Brighton, listen back to Wednesday's episode of UK Politics Weekly, where Jessica Elgott will be bringing you all the highlights and maybe even the odd lowlight. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer this week was Hattie Moyer, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe out there, and thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.